Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Temple of Teeth. Stedman looked out at the sea of aspen trees flying past. Though it was unusually warm, spring still hadn't arrived yet, so the trees were still in the depths of their winter dormancy. They all looked like little pale spikes up there on the hill, and for a moment, the hillside looked to Stedman like the corpse of a massive porcupine, rolling and steep and covered in pointy little barbs. He had never been to this part of the state, so the landscape was fresh and exciting to him. He was so taken by it, in fact, that he decided to pull over and snap a few photos. He had a sorry eye for composition, but that didn't matter. The only person that would ever see the photos was him. They served only to remind him of what he felt and saw as he made this drive. Later, when he started working on the manuscript, the pictures would help him fill in the blank spots in his memory. At least, that's what he'd hoped. He still felt a sense of dread at the prospect of writing another book. His first two had done terribly. The sales figures for the publications barely reached 1,000 copies. Combined. It was time to sink or swim, he knew. The third book signified his last chance to find success as a paranormal author. And if it bombed like the first two had, he'd throw in the towel, enroll in trade school to become a welder or a plumber or some such thing. He'd leave all the ghost-hunting nonsense behind, as his father so eloquently put it. But first, he'd give it one last shot. He'd take one last stab at his childhood dreams, at becoming the John Keel of his generation. It made him nervous when he put it like that, but he'd be lying if he told you that he didn't have a good feeling about it. Deep down, under all that dread and anxiety, he felt a sort of promise at the idea, a strange brand of optimism. If he did it right, 
his third book would be the apex of his accomplishments, the definitive record of what happened at Alcon Hollow. If you ask most people, they'll say they've never heard of a settlement called Alcon Hollow. Even many of the residents of Utah, where Alcon Hollow was located, have never heard of it. It's hard to say why what happened there never became widespread news, especially when similar stories, like the lost colony of Roanoke and the Flannan Isles Lighthouse, have become focal points of numerous internet folktales. It began when two brothers named Rowan and Thurgood Lane settled there in the late 1970s. They had purchased 160 acres in northern Utah and immediately set about developing the land. They called it Alcon Hollow, though there's no record of where exactly the name came from. By 1980, some 45 people had joined them at the settlement. A general store, two restaurants, and a smattering of houses had been erected by that point. It's anybody's guess why those people chose that desolate strip of land to make their home? Why they saw fit to join the Lane brothers in their bizarre new settlement? Perhaps they felt like it was a calling of some kind, or that life at Alcon Hollow would provide them with something that they thought they'd been missing. Only a handful of outsiders ever managed to breach the town with the hope of finding out what went on there, and the only thing they could gather was that all the residents were devoutly religious. It was obvious in their speech, their mannerisms, their attitudes, that they lived their lives solely to serve God. Though, oddly, at least for the state of Utah, the town of Alconhollow had no Mormon temple, and none of the town's residents were anywhere to be found on the LDS church's impeccably kept records. Furthermore, none of the buildings in the town resembled churches of any other religion either. So, exactly what religion did they ascribe to? That too was unknown. By 1989, Alcon Hollow's population had reached its peak. There were 73 known residents, ranging from newborn babies to retirees. The community was almost entirely self-sustaining, and little state intervention was ever needed. So when whatever happened there happened, it's hard to say. But what is known is that on the 6th of May, 1990, an electrician was sent to repair a downed cable that ran through the foothills outside of town. From his view atop the phone pole, he observed a striking lack of activity in the once busy settlement. The electrician, along with his foreman and two other line workers, decided to drive through the town, at which point they found it deserted. The county sheriff was alerted and an investigation was launched, but none of the residents were ever located. And there was Stedman Kirsch, who, with the 30th anniversary of the mass disappearance approaching, was making his way through the mountains of northern Utah. He had a book in his mind, and not just any book, but a big one, one that people would talk about, one that would blow the lid off a 30-year-old mystery. Stedman would be a household name, at least if he could prove what he was going there to prove. See, when it comes to Alcon Hollow, there's what's known, and then there's what's speculated on. And the book taking shape in Stedman's mind tended to lean towards the latter. Though he wouldn't admit it to himself, he did of course have an agenda. He wasn't just out to solve the disappearances from a purely anthropological perspective. What he wanted to do was prove true the rumors that what had happened there was due to some variety of occult practice. But there would be time for all that later. 
For now, all Stedman had to worry about was getting there, which, if he was being honest with himself, was proving to be a more difficult task than he'd expected. He was still an hour away from Alkenhollow, and already he had no cell service. He'd anticipated as much, which was why he'd brought an old Thomas guide and studied the route before leaving his house. But still, it was a difficult place to find. There were no major highways leading to the town, so the only way to get there was by traveling neglected dirt roads. And now that night was beginning to fall, it was growing exceedingly difficult for him to maintain his sense of direction. Then, as he squinted out at the darkening horizon, something began to take shape. He could see the silhouette of what looked like a house behind the crest of an approaching hill. Stedman felt goosebumps beginning to form on his arms, his skin cold with anticipation and fear. And then it was all there before him. He crested the hill, and the headlights of his jeep illuminated the silent remains of Alkin Hollow. It was every bit as unnerving as he'd expected it to be. So still and quiet, it was uncanny. It was as if the town had been forgotten by time. And in a way, he supposed it had. He parked his jeep just off the town's main strip, cutting his engine and turning off his headlights before taking a look around him to make sure he was still alone. Because the investigation into the disappearances at Alkin Hollow never came to any conclusion, the case was technically still open. From everything he'd read online, though, law enforcement officials were rarely seen there. Perhaps even they knew that what had occurred there couldn't be explained by traditional means. Still, Stedman wanted to make himself scarce. The last thing he wanted to do was join the list of amateur sleuths that had been kicked out of Alkin Hollow for poking around. If he caught the attention of a state official now, he'd get the boot before he even had a chance to conduct his investigation. And if there was no investigation, there was no book. Which was why he was glad to be the only one there. But although there were no other signs of life, Stedman still found himself reaching over and hitting the lock button on the door of his jeep. Maybe it was all the speculation he'd read on the internet. Maybe it was just raw nerves from hours spent on the road. Or maybe it was the eerie silence of the abandoned buildings. But something about the town put him on edge. There was something he could tell just being there. That something had gone wrong in that place. That he was at the site of something utterly inexplicable. When he'd started planning his trip to Alkin Hollow, Stedman knew it would be a frightening place to spend the night, especially alone. But he didn't realize just how oppressive the atmosphere would be in that place. It brought to mind all the things he'd read about it online. Rumors about the townspeople walking around in a zombie-like state in the days leading up to their vanishing. Leaked police reports explaining how food was left half-eaten on dinner tables. How cars had been abandoned in the middle of the road. As he climbed into his sleeping bag in the back seat of his jeep, he tried to push the images out of his mind. But it was a difficult thing to do when he was sitting there in the dark at ground zero. Eventually, though, his consciousness drifted on to other things. More pleasant things. Like the feeling he would get when he saw his name on the New York Times bestsellers list. Or the prospect of embarking on his first real book tour. And soon, even those thoughts were released from his consciousness, as the exhaustion of his long day caught up with him, and he drifted off to sleep. 
When the sun rose the following morning, it glared at him through the windshield of his jeep. The sudden brightness jolted him awake, and he stirred upright in his sleeping bag. He looked around him, debating whether to change his clothes. After a few moments of sluggish consideration, he opted not to, choosing instead to do a half-assed job of brushing his teeth and applying a new layer of deodorant to his armpits. He gathered his camera, a notebook, and an old tape recorder before stepping out into the crisp morning air. He had some other equipment, like motion sensors, additional EVP recorders, and an EMF meter, but he planned on returning for those later, once he got a good layout of the town. His plan to spend the morning surveying the area was brought to a screeching halt, though. He didn't get a chance to walk through the dusty ramshackle general store or peer in the windows of the decaying houses, because something stopped him almost immediately after he stepped out of his car. Something he was pretty sure hadn't been there the night before. It stood sentinel at the end of the town's main drag, directly in front of what he assumed was the Lane Brothers' house. He was about 30 yards away from it, but he could see that it was a statue of some kind. It didn't portray the figure of a human, though. It was some kind of obscene animal, like a chimera. It appeared to have the head of a goat and the body of... well, he didn't know what. It looked in some ways to be reptilian, and in other ways to be... human. Stedman lifted his camera, walking towards the shining white statue. In his mind, he was already thinking about how it would look on the cover of his book. But then something stopped him. He realized, as he got within a few paces of the statue, that its texture wasn't smooth as he'd originally thought. It was scaly looking, kind of mottled, all covered in dots and bumps. And then he realized what he was looking at. It was a statue made out of teeth. That's impossible, he thought, reaching a hand out to touch it. Surely it hadn't been assembled in the night. But even placing it there, with its size and delicacy, in the few hours that he'd been asleep, it seemed unlikely. He shot a litany of photographs as he inspected the statue, surmising from the size and shape of the teeth that most of them had come from animals. There were the usual shapes like canine and cattle, mixed in with others that he didn't recognize but assumed to be farm animals of some kind. But then he noticed different teeth. Smaller teeth. Flatter teeth. He reached his finger out to pick something small and metallic off the bumpy surface of the statue, but shrunk away when he realized what it was. A filling. He was looking at a human tooth. All at once, the situation became too much for him. He could do haunted ghost towns and mysterious disappearances. He could even deal with macabre statues, but he couldn't deal with human teeth, especially ones that looked so fresh, as if they'd just been yanked out of someone's jaw. He turned to head back to his jeep, but then something stopped him again. He got that feeling that people sometimes get, that moment of panic when they think their car's been stolen, but then realize they'd just parked it somewhere else. Except Stedman hadn't parked his car somewhere else. His jeep was just... gone. He studied the spot where his vehicle had been just moments before. Finally, whatever paralysis was holding him let go, and he jogged over to inspect the tire tracks. 
When he got there, he found no solution to his problem. The tire tracks just stopped at the spot where his Jeep had been parked. It was as if someone had backed the Jeep out in the exact same tire tracks he had made coming in. It was ludicrous. And even then, he would have heard the engine. His heart chugged away from somewhere in his throat, and his chest grew stiff with a spike of anxiety. In what felt like seconds, things had gone from promising, to bizarre, to downright desperate. He was not only stranded, but stranded and potentially in danger. From what, he didn't know. But if it was capable of silently rearranging vehicles and giant statues made of teeth, it would have no trouble rearranging the parts of his body. Without much thought or consideration, he decided to walk in the path left by the tire tracks. He would follow the route he'd driven in on the previous night, and it would lead him back to civilization, or however far it took for him to get service on his cell phone. The sun shone on him continuously as he walked, but it never got up above 50 degrees. The air was chill, even without a breeze, and he walked most of the way with his arms wrapped around his body to conceal warmth. He passed rolling hills, dead trees, old ranch fences, and dried-up ravines, but very little of it looked familiar to him. As he walked, he checked his cell phone periodically, hoping to have enough service to make a call. But never did a single bar pop up in the top left corner of his screen. Worse, in fact, because now, along with having no cell service, his phone was also on the last remnants of battery life. By the late afternoon, he felt no closer to civilization, no closer to safety. But he pushed on, walking down the barren dirt road, keeping his footfalls between the tire tracks his jeep had made the night before. The sun was beginning to set, and he was preparing himself for the fear of walking through the cold night, alone and exposed. As he looked up at the hillside next to him, he realized that it looked familiar, though he couldn't pinpoint exactly where he'd seen it. A few paces later, though, another shape arose from behind it. It was steep and pointed. No, he said aloud, surprised at how gritty and defeated his voice sounded. A chimney took shape, and then he saw the silhouettes of a few other buildings at the edge of town. He was back at Alcan Hollow. This can't be, he thought. He followed the same tracks the whole way, the same ones he had made when he drove into town the night before. There was no way they could loop back around to town. They had to come from somewhere. Unless, he thought, unless I got turned around somewhere out there. He looked back at the darkening horizon. He couldn't imagine himself losing his sense of direction so completely. How could he fail to follow a single set of tire tracks? He approached the town proper, looking at everything differently than he had the night before. Since the events of that day, everything looked distinctly more sinister. Every abandoned building held some secret. Every window held a pair of watching eyes. He jerked his head around, paranoid, certain now that he wasn't alone. Before hysteria could take control of him, he tried to ground himself, to reel himself in. Night was falling fast, so he didn't have much time to find shelter and protection. He broke the window of one of the houses on the perimeter of town, choosing it above the others only because it was the furthest away from that horrid tooth statue. 
after heaving himself through the window, careful not to cut himself on any of the broken glass. He got to his feet and peered around inside. It was a small house, a living room with a kitchenette in the corner, a bathroom with all the copper pipes ripped out of it, and a small bedroom that still had a stained mattress laying on the floor in the corner. He looked around for a hammer and nails, hoping to find something he could use to board up the window he'd broken to get inside. But he could find nothing of the like, so he opted instead to push a large standing mirror up against the opening. He found some blankets and towels in the crumbling hall closet and wrapped himself up before laying down on the forgotten mattress in the bedroom. He didn't think sleep would come easy, considering the desperate situation he'd found himself in, but he underestimated just how tired he was after walking all day. And there was also the fear. Spending countless hours in a state of panic has a way of wearing you out. At least it did him. He lay there on the mattress for only a few minutes before his eyelids grew heavy and he gave himself over to sleep. In his dreams, he found himself walking through a foreign desert landscape. All around him, he could hear voices reciting something. He recognized the words. They were from The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. The voices chanted, repeating the stanza over and over. And through the monotonous drone of the voices, he could hear massive, thundering footsteps, could see, in his mind's eye, a great ivory chimera, the shattered bones of its victims tumbling from its hungry mouth. He stirred awake suddenly. A cold sweat coated his body, despite it being nearly freezing inside the abandoned house. It took him a moment to remember where he was and what had happened the previous day. When it all came back to him, he felt a sharp stab of panic, accompanied by the dull ache of hunger. The room was still blanketed in darkness, but soon came into focus around him. His eyes were drawn to the bedroom window, where he could see a hazy shape that may have been a chimney or the trunk of a dead tree. May have been, but wasn't because chimneys and dead trees don't move, and whatever he was looking at slipped out of view almost as soon as he fixed his eyes on it, as if it had noticed him looking at it. He lay, paralyzed, trembling on the sullied mattress, trying to decide his next move. There were plenty of reasons for him to get up. If there was something outside, something dangerous, he knew he'd be best off facing it on his feet. He knew that if he stay there and let it come find him, his chances of survival weren't promising. But in the end, it wasn't concern for safety that got him to his feet. It was the tiny, minuscule glimmer of hope that if he did make it out of that maelstrom of insanity alive, the book he would write about his experience would not only be good, but great. It wouldn't just be a blip on the literary radar. It would be a worldwide bestseller. A terrifying survival story from one of the great new voices in paranormal research. He found a stray piece of lumber in the corner of the room and hefted it in his hands. It would make a suitable weapon, he thought, if things came to that. He tiptoed over to the front door of the house, throwing the deadbolt open and peering out through the crack. Outside, the early morning sky was a dark purple hue. He could make out only a few details of the town, which were illuminated only by the slowly setting moon. Among the dilapidated buildings, he could see no movement, 
could hear nothing but that eerie quiet that pervaded the town. Crouching low, he stepped outside and began tracing the perimeter of the house. When he got outside the bedroom window, through which he'd seen the movement, he studied the dusty earth. Something that resembled footprints, though admittedly no footprints he had ever seen before, were laid into the dirt at irregular intervals. The prints were messy, and it was hard for him to make out much detail in the darkness. But he could see that the heel of the prince looked strikingly human, while the ball of the print was laid by something that looked like a split hoof. In some areas, where the earth was soft, the prints were pressed an inch or deeper into the ground, giving him the idea that whatever laid them was of substantial size and weight. He followed the prints, as nearly as he could decipher them, and they seemed to be leading towards the great house at the end of the main strip the house in front of which the statue had been placed. Only now, the statue was gone. And in its place stood a small, black box. It was about a foot tall and a foot wide, and appeared to have been made out of wood. It reminded him of a jewelry box sitting there in the middle of the road, though in this context, jewelry was the last thing he'd expected to find in it. He crept towards the box slowly, fighting himself constantly to keep his breath under control, to keep his panic at bay. When he arrived before the box, he got to one knee, still gripping the piece of lumber in his hand, ready to strike if anyone tried to sneak up on him. He flipped the box open with his other hand, its clean wooden lid gliding on metal hinges. Inside, the box was lined with something that looked like velvet, perhaps, or suede. It contained only one item, a tool, although one he didn't recognize. The entire thing looked to be made out of stainless steel, its smooth construction gleaming in the glow of the moon. On one end, it had a round grip like that of a screwdriver, out of which extended a sharp circular protrusion. On its face, the closest thing it resembled to him was an ice pick, but most of the ice picks he'd seen in his life had a contoured wooden handle and something about the device looked clinical with its sleek metal design. Disparately, he wondered if this was the tool responsible for removing all those teeth that the statue was made out of. The thought made him shiver. Getting back to his feet, he took a long look around, wondering who or what could be out there looking back at him. And then he turned his gaze to the house, and to the strange hoofed footprints leading into it. Leaving the black box where it lay, he followed them inside. The front door of the great two-story house hung open, as if to invite passers-by inside. But the last thing Stedman felt as he entered the residence was welcome. Just inside the entryway was a sprawling parlor, which was bisected by a grand staircase. Two photographs still hung on the wall. Each featured a gaunt, bearded man with a stoic expression. He recognized the faces from the research he'd done on the internet as those of Rowan and Thurgood Lane. So this was the Lane house after all, he thought. Compared to the other houses he'd peeked inside, the Lane house was in surprisingly good condition. There was a noticeable layer of dust on some of the surfaces and a few scattered holes in the walls, but otherwise the house looked almost as if somebody still lived in it. Thankfully, the morning sun was rising now, 
so he could actually see where he was going. He didn't know exactly what he expected to find in that house, but its ominous presence, its proximity to the statue he'd seen the day before, and the fact that the footprints led him back to it, all told him that there was something to be found in that place. There was something there that would help him understand what had happened on that cursed plot of land 30 years before. Far off, in some distant part of his head, he knew that there were more important matters at hand. He knew that now that the sun had risen, his focus should have been devoted to getting out of there alive, to finding rescue. But that primal instinct had been dulled and quieted until it constituted nothing more than a whisper in his cacophonous thoughts. It was as if something was worming its way into his head, seducing him, until he cared more about understanding what was at the center of Alcan Hollow than making it out of there in one piece. Stedman made his way from room to room, inspecting the contents of the house. He read almanacs and town records and various types of correspondence that were lying around, but none of it brought him any closer to the truth. Until, in a fit of frustration, he swung the piece of lumber that he was still carrying and smashed a sizable hole in one of the hallway walls. When the dust cleared, he could see that a cache of papers had been hidden in the compartment behind the wall. He tore away at the drywall until he could reach all the way inside, then pulled the papers out and dumped them on the floor. He sat cross-legged in the hallway, inspecting the papers and trying to figure out why their author had seen fit to hide them behind a wall. As he read the entries, it soon became clear that they had come from a journal written by Thurgood Lane. Many of them seemed to pertain to his brother, Rowan, and concerned some kind of disagreement between them. It took Stedman a few minutes to get the journal entries into chronological order, but once he did, this is what he learned. The idea for the Lane brothers to move out west and start the settlement had come to Rowan in a dream. Neither Rowan nor Thurgood had ever been religious, but after having the dream, Rowan felt that God himself was calling upon him to do something, to carry out some magnificent plan. They never invited anyone to come join them at the settlement, but month after month, newcomers would show up. Though many of the travelers would only speak about it privately, they often claimed to have come because Rowan appeared in their dreams telling them where Alcan Hollow was and how to get there. As time went on, Rowan saw himself more and more as a chosen man, sent to Earth to carry out the bidding of a mysterious god. Eventually, this became a point of contention between the brothers, and Thurgood took to stashing his journal entries away for fear of what Rowan might do if he found them. Thurgood doubted that God had chosen Rowan to carry out any plan but the townspeople weren't so skeptical. Rowan, it seemed, had started making predictions. He predicted when rain would fall, when livestock would die, when people's cars would break down. Once, he even predicted that a local couple's child would be born blind. Each time one of Rowan's predictions came true, the townspeople became that much more convinced that he was, in fact, a prophet. The last thing Rowan prophesied was that on the 3rd of May, in the year 1990, he would die in his sleep. And like the other prophecies, that one came true as well. But before he died, Rowan urged the townspeople not to be afraid. He assured him 
that he would be resurrected, that he would return after his death in an ascended form, and that he would guide the townspeople through the gates of heaven. After his death, but before his avowed return, Thurgood wrote that Rowan had appeared in the dreams of many of the town's residents. Each dream carried the same message. Rowan would appear and calmly instruct the townspeople to lobotomize the members of their family. Once each of them had received a lobotomy, he claimed, they would be ready to witness his ascended form. They would be able to embark on the journey to heaven, where they would find joy and bounty like none they had ever seen on earth. The following morning, each of the town's residents awoke to find a black box sitting on their doorstep. Inside the boxes, they found clinical skewers, or bidoclasts, as Rowan had called them in the dreams, which they would use to perform the procedure on each other. Where the boxes had come from, nobody knew, but more than a few of the town's residents expressed reservations at carrying out the plan. Among them, no doubt, was Thurgood, but the town's more devout followers soon overpowered them until all had felt the cold metal skewer slide in through their eye cavity and pierce their prefrontal cortex. Suddenly, a loud thud shook Stedman from his reading. He couldn't tell where the sound had come from, but it jolted the house in such a way that it seemed to have emanated from above him. He peered around, waiting for something to stir. When nothing did, he clutched the journal entries to his chest and crept back down the stairs. As he walked, Stedman couldn't really recall why exactly he decided to bring the papers with him. Only a moment before, they had seemed of great significance to him. They were integral to something he wanted to do, something he wanted to accomplish. But now, all of that seemed very far off. When he reached the doorway of the house, Stedman stopped. The little black box he had found that morning was still sitting on the road just outside. Only now, something had been inscribed in the dirt next to it. Abandon your flesh and be reborn, the letters said. As Stedman looked at the letters, he remembered what it was that had made him want to keep the journal entries. A book. He wanted to write a book. About this place. Yes, that was it, a book. And he had been so certain that the book would bring him fulfillment and gratification. But standing there now, he didn't think any of that was true. It almost seemed absurd to him, in fact. Abandon your flesh and be reborn. He looked at the black box. That, he knew, was where he would find fulfillment. Inside the black box was where his gratification lie. He walked over to the box and lifted the orbitoclast out of it, feeling its cold weight in his hands. As he held the smooth tool, a voice began to speak to him. He recognized it. It was one of the voices he'd heard in his dream the night before. The voice guided him as he lifted the long cylindrical tool toward his face. It guided him as he inserted the sharp end through the corner of his eye feeling the chill metal against his flesh. And it guided him as he felt a stinging pop just behind his forehead. Stedman smiled. He could hear the footsteps of God scuttling across the rooftop above him. It wouldn't be long now, he knew.
God would reach his pale arms down and lift him through the gates of heaven. He turned to look as his Savior descended from the roof. God crept towards him, long horns extending from his toothy head, jagged claws outstretched to embrace his new follower. A great gnashing of teeth ensued, and Stedman, or at least what was left of him, waited patiently to be reborn. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.